Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. My name is Steve Hall. I'm the Executive Director of the Mustang Owners Museum. And today we have a guest uh, who we've had his car ever since the museum has been open. Uh, he finally found us and he wants it back. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, it's actually been a very nice car for us. It's got, uh, got uh, well, we call it number 211. And for those of you who have been to the museum, uh, you've seen where we built a barn to kind of give it a barn fine look to it. Uh, but it's got a really very unique story. And the owner of the car, who's been very gracious to loan it to us all this time, Todd Adams, is with us today. And so I want to welcome you to the show, Todd. Great. Steve, thank you so much for having me. And it's been a pleasure to have my car in the museum this whole time. It's it's just been a real treat. I never something I never thought I would see. And when I was here for um, uh, the Mustang Day celebration, someone told me people are actually getting married in front of that car. You've had weddings in front of it, and that that just uh, that that made my day. That is no, that is true. We have had weddings here, and we did have a group that wanted to get married right there with that car. Um, I don't know if that means I, I, I'm still trying to figure out why they wanted to be in front of a barn. Not so much, but as, Hey, it's a, it's a great venue for a car. So, I mean, for, for a wedding with that car, but it was just kind of, it was just, you know, it was just unusual. Uh, but again, that's fine. We we we're, we're always happy to have that, um, have guests be, uh, be able to come and do things like that. So I guess that'll be a keepsake. They'll have their wedding album for a long time, as they say. So what I'm hoping to do it a little bit today, um, when I first saw the car, I was actually wandering around at the auto barn and uh, a gentleman came up who I later, later learned, uh, I think it was, it was Bill. And I introduced myself to him. I'm with the Mustang Museum. And he goes, oh yeah, you know, we got a, we got an old one back over here. And he kind of pointed out your car and he says, I think the gentleman might sell it. And I said, oh, okay. Well, we really weren't looking to buy cars. We were just kind of looking for unique cars. And so I kind of saw the saw the vehicle, and uh, it had some paperwork in the front dash, and it said Charles Turner on it. I had done some research for it, and I've I've known Charles a little bit. I I can't say I know I know much better now, but I knew him a little bit then from the MCA as a, as he was a judge. So I called him up, and he says, "Oh, Steve, he said that'd be a great car for the museum." I said, "I really think that'd be a great car." I said, "Well, okay, how do I get a hold of the owner?" And he goes, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get. So he did work. I he did, I ended up getting your information, and you and I had a chance to sit down and, and talk about it. Um, one thing that we're here with the museum is we like to share, showcase, and share uh, owners' cars, but also unique cars, cars that tell a story. Um, not every car in there is brand new, one of one. Not everyone in their car has zero miles on it. Uh, we're not trying to be like that, but we try to share. These are the owners and the owner's interests with these cars. And the more I talked with you and the more I learned about the car, really the more interesting this car became actually one of our most interesting cars we have in the museum. And so, um, and I think Todd will attest to you, I have been bugging him for, oh, how long? A number of months. Uh, it's just been tough with schedules. So there, there, some of the times it was my fault. I had to cancel too. Uh, things happen, but, uh, but we're really glad to have you. And we're kind of looking forward just to having a chance to, Tell us a little bit about Mustang, um, your Mustang 211. Uh, like you said, you did share some of that information at the uh, National Mustang Day event. 
so I'm hoping we can kind of now reach out a little bit more to a broader audience than what we had here and just share number what, and what 211 actually means. All right. So I'm going to go back, way back, if that's good. Perfect. Uh, so, so this car, I've had this car since 1986 when I was a senior in high school. Uh, at the time, I was driving a 66 coupe with a two-barrel V8 in it, uh, 289. And uh, I was showing the car. It was doing pretty well. And, you know, I'd, I'd done some easy things. It was a, it was a, had been a one-owner car, easy to make look good at the, for what car shows were at the time. And we're not talking national level. We maybe third place at Auto Fair. You know, it was doing okay. So I saw this white Mustang, and I worked hard on this, on this, hard, on this Mustang. It, it was on the road that I would go to. I was on for work a lot. and. Uh, Knocked on the door, talked to the lady a number of times who was not interested in selling the car. Finally, one day she said, I said, can I look inside the car? And she said, sure. And so I opened it up. I looked at the data plate, wrote the data plate information down and uh, went home and went through my Mustang recognition guide and some of the books, some of the old books that were out in the 80s and realized that the production number, the date was March 9th, which was the first day of production. So now I went from wanting this car a little bit to wanting this car a lot. I knew all along it was a first-day car. Uh, worked on, her name was Carolyn Nolan. Uh, her father was a doctor in Winston-Salem, bought the car from uh, Hall Dobbs Ford in Winston-Salem. Uh, talk a little bit about that in, in a little bit. But uh, Dr. Nolan bought the car. He had given it to her sometime in the 70s to drive. Uh, he, when he got a new car, he gave that to her. And uh, she had driven it, loved the car. She called me when she finally called me, said, Would you, do you want to buy it? I said, yeah, we agreed on a price of $800. Paid $800 for the car. My dad was an airline mechanic, and uh, he fixed everything. I mean, we, we kept things way longer than you should have kept anything. And uh, I didn't get that skill. But he, uh, I checked the oil. I checked the fluids in the car, and I drove it home. When I got home, first thing he wanted to do immediately was change the oil. Well, he went out there and he pulled drain plug out of the car. And he came out looking for me. He was hot when he came up there. He said, you drove this car home without any oil in it. I said, did not drive this car home without any oil in it. He said, there's no oil in it. So I just pulled the plug and there's nothing coming out of it. Well, about the time he went back there and got underneath the car, it started coming out. <laughs> it, it had been in there so long without being changed. It was like grease what was coming out of that car. It was just, she had no, she did no maintenance on the car at all, but she loved that car. Carolyn called for years. She would call afterwards and say, do you still have my car? Are you taking care of it? But I found out quickly, this was a bigger project than, than high school senior was able to, to take on. It had, when you come to the museum, hopefully you come to the museum and see the car. When you see it, it has, it has the standard early Mustang rust issues. We've got some floorboard issues, uh, some quarter panel issues that were pretty common, pretty common things. Uh, a little bit out of, out of my skill set and uh, quickly became evident that I couldn't restore it. So we went to the backyard of my parents' house. Now we don't live out, we live in the country, but in a subdivision. So it's not like this car is hidden in the woods. This car is sitting in the backyard much to the chagrin of my father and mother, who did not like this car sitting in their backyard. And the uh, car sat there for, for a while, and my dad actually sold the car. He put an ad in Hemmings, 
And a gentleman in California who had a uh, an 84 model 20th anniversary white convertible with a red interior. This car, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's white, Wilmington white with a red interior. Uh, he wanted a matching car for his 20th anniversary. So he was going to arrange shipping, send it back. My dad and I had a really rough conversation over this. It was not it was bad disagreement over the fact that he had sold my car. And gentleman called back and said he was, it changed his mind. He says, the car run. My dad said, yeah, it runs. He said, well, I'm going to drive it back. I'm going to be in Maryland for business. I'll come down. I'll fly down to North Carolina. He picked me up at the airport. I'll drive it back to California. My dad said he couldn't trust that car. He said, I can't, I can't, in my right conscience, let you head out across the country in this car. So, uh, car that. He tells me you need to get rid of it. You got to do something about this car. So, this probably goes to 91, 92 range. Um, still sitting there. And a good friend of mine named David Naylor. David, uh, David, I, I ran, uh, raced SCCA, sports car racing. And, and David, David competed with me. And he had a, an old dairy barn on Hall River in, uh, outside of Burlington, North Carolina. And uh, he had cars in that barn. I said, David, would you mind us? I stuck my car in your barn. And he said, no, that's fine. So I think it's, ni- it's 91, 92. I'm, I would guess 92. We send the car to the barn. I quit racing, uh, road racing. When kids come along, kind of lose contact with David. This is before social media, so you don't keep up with people the way you do now. And uh, I didn't see that car after I stuck it in the barn in 1992. So we go from 1992, we'll jump all the way to, to 2010. In 2010, I'm watching Barrett-Jackson. It's a snowy weekend here in North Carolina, and they do the fantasy cars. Boy, I can't remember who was sponsoring at the time, but they do your fantasy bids. And so they gave an upcoming car, was going to be a 64.5 pace car, replica pace car. So I did a little... Research, trying to come up with my Haggard, it was Haggerty, Haggerty fantasy bid. And um, when I did, some information popped up that uh, told me this car may be a little more interesting than I thought. And uh, turned out that maybe really an early car. And uh, started doing a little more research and found out that this really muddy, what happens in the beginning uh, of, of Mustangs. We don't really know where, we don't really know where pre-production stopped. And where production starts with numbering. Um, so if you can, if you, we all know that number one was sold. A gentleman in Canada, a pilot, right? And then, then that car is back uh, in the Henry Ford Museum now. But that car, that car was considered a pre-production car. But didn't it? Didn't have? Uh, it wasn't. Didn't have a DSO number. A DSO number talks about where a car going to. Distribution center, right? I, Steve, you help me with, right, with no, that. Right, it's a district sales order. Yeah. So it gives you an idea of what part of the region or the country the car was going to go through and into that dealership area, region or area. So mm-hmm. those car, that car didn't have a DSO number on it. And when you look at the cars, like the World's Fair cars and some of those other cars, those cars didn't have DSO numbers on them either. So I uh, started to do a little more research on it, and that's how Charles Turner became involved in it. I, Someone suggested Charles, and just happened to be Charles lives in Raleigh, in the Raleigh area. 
which is about halfway between where I live and uh, and the barn where the car was. So it was rather convenient. And Charles comes and graciously helps us identify some parts on the car. And uh, as you said, there's some documentation that goes with it. Uh, some of these parts on this car, as you know, if you guys know about this, you know, these, car, these parts are dated when you take them apart and look at them. There's glass on this car that dates back into 1963. Um, the, uh, then there's parts underneath it that are marked pre-production. The heater, the, and the heater has a, a sticker on it that says pre-production. So it's a very, very early car. First day, you know, for me, when I saw 211 on it, I thought that's probably about third shift. But really don't know. We have no idea where that is. Yeah. Well, one thing is, which I think a lot of the listeners know, is that uh, the VIN number does not mean it was made in that sequential order. It's actually almost like an order number. It says, like, now 211 is going to have this, 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 and this, and this on it. And, of course, uh, if you've ever had a chance to go to Detroit and do the Rouge Plant tour where they make trucks, uh, which I'm using trucks as an example, um, when it comes to cars, period, whether it be truck or car, Everything keeps going and they can't stop because, oops, I'm out of this part. If you're out of that part, it means you have to stop production and they can't afford to do that. So they've actually got it figured out to the point where each car that's coming down the line, all the parts are in place or in stock so they can keep making the car. The more heavily optioned a car is, the more likely it's going to be done later because you got to make sure you have all the options and all the parts and all the pieces. Uh, there's an interesting book that's actually called Mustang Genesis. Uh, for those of you that really like to get an early, early, early history, because there are uh, parts on these early Mustangs that obviously came from Falcons because it's a Falcon platform, but there are Thunderbird parts. There are parts, and one thing that we've learned is that automotive manufacturers do not let any product or any extra parts sit around. That's money. So they're going to turn around and figure out how to use these things. And so, you know, it'd be nice to know, for example, why didn't they use 289s right off the bat in 1964, but they did 260s. But again, it could be because they had all those left over from Falcons. You just, you know, we don't know. But it's kind of interesting that everything is done with a purpose when it comes to manufacturing. So some of that delays... And so number 211 could have been the very first one made that day. It could have been the last one made that day. And that, of course, is a topic of a different conversation when it comes to the records and the production records, which do not exist. So anyway, so I just want to kind of slip that in a little bit so kind of people get an overall picture with production and what happened. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, and, and the car is not optioned at all. It's for, for it, it came out It's a six-cylinder, three-speed. Uh, the option I think it had would be a radio, a radio, it had a side view mirror would have been an option then and, uh, spinner hubcaps. I think, I think that would have been our options on that car. So, um, very, 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 uh, basic car, but we also have some documentation because we've done a lot of work on it. Uh, we'll look back and talk about how the cars were introduced, you know, with a big commercial across all networks, right? At one time, so the next day. People are lined up at the dealerships to see it. In order to do that, Ford made sure every dealer had a Mustang. Well, I say they want to make sure they had at least one Mustang. And that's an interesting story in itself because dealers had to have at least one. Other dealers had two or three. But that was their car. That was actually their salesman's sample. So that being this a first-day car, our understanding is that the first-day cars that did go to the dealerships, 
they were purposely there to take orders. Yes, you could they would eventually sell it. And in some cases, uh, some dealerships did sell the car a little earlier than they should have. And I know you may have, uh, your listeners now may have heard the story with uh, Gail and Tom Wise because they bought their car two days earlier than the car would have, had even been announced by Ford. And they were driving it. The dealership should not have released it. They got it and took it home. There are other instances where the dealership would sell a person the car. In fact, that's exactly what happened with the 001. Uh, the Canadian airline pilot came in, wanted a convertible in Canada, I should mention. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he had to have that car. He wanted to buy it. And they kept trying to explain to him that they couldn't sell it to him because he can't take it home. And he finally said, well... I want to buy it and I'll leave it here. Let me know when I can come pick it up. And that's what he did. So after a period of time, they were allowed to, then to release those cars. But uh, so the car number 211, it was the demonstration model for that dealership. It, it absolutely was. We, Dr. Nolan, who, who purchased the car, uh, my mother was a nurse, worked uh, at the hospital where Dr. Nolan practiced. So we did know Dr. Nolan. And uh, very similar situation. He wanted the car. And... Uh, paid for it, or at least made a deposit on the car, but didn't take delivery until early May of the car. But it was, right. no one else that was going to walk in the hall Dobbs Ford was going to buy that car, because that was that was Dr. Nolan's car sitting there until they could get a replacement for it. Right. No, and that's that's exactly it. So that was kind of neat for us to know that the car we have here was actually one of those demonstration cars, or the demo car, or not, or I um, say it was, it was a salesman sample. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. At the time, so that's that's kind of cool. So it's a matter you kind of wonder how many people actually bought a car from seeing two eleven. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, kind of a neat neat feature to it. It was, and it was really nice that we were able to talk to him. And you know, if you look at the car, one of the steps I did early on the car is I pulled the carpet out of the car. When I pulled the carpet out of that car, well, first I'll back up a little bit. Car had uh, smaller tires on the back than it should have had. Come to find out, and there was a trailer hitch. Trailer hitch is still in the trunk. We pulled it off. It's in, it's in the trunk. Turns out Dr. Nolan pulled a boat with that car. When I pulled the carpet out, there was mud under the carpet. And uh, so I said to my mom, I said, next time you see Dr. Nolan, ask him if he ever had an incident with the boat and the Mustang. And sure enough, he said, how did he figure that out? <laughs> and uh, he, he, had, he was, when he was loading the boat, the the Mustang had gone a little too far into the lake. He so, got he got a little wash job. Underneath he he the, did yes, and the mud he had cleaned the interior, but the the mud under the carpet told the story of what yeah. had happened. So. <laughs> oh, it's funny what a car can tell you like that. That's funny, but again, that just adds to the story, as they say. So, well, the key, the nice thing is that um, from what we've been able to tell from talking to different people who've been in the hobby. Um, what they seem to commonly agree upon is that the first 178 Mustangs were one through 178 were all used for marketing purposes. Some of those purposes, of course, were to um, have the cars on display at the World's Fair. Some of them were actually cars used at the World New York World's Fair. Uh, I also found out that 44 of them had been sent around to colleges and college campuses to the journalism class, to journalism editor for the for the paper, there for them to use, but they wanted those cars on the campus because they wanted people on the camp, college campus to see these cars. 
I've never heard that story. Yeah, I, well, we do a little research here, too. We do get to hear some things. I wanted to share some of this with you. So that was part of what had gone on with these cars. So they were used, and of course, they were, cars were given to journalists to use. Many of those cars, of course, are expected to be returned. And when they were returned, um, if they were in good shape, still looking good, uh, they actually went on to what Ford uh, has is the employee dealer lot. Cars that have been returned by the employees go on with their own their own internal dealer lot, and you can buy the car. Cars like the World's Fair car that have been gone round and round and round in the in the uh, uh, pavilion, uh, and it's estimated about forty thousand people each year rode in that Mustang uh, on that. Magic Skyway, as they called it, uh, those would go back to Karen, and Karen Company would actually put new put the motors in the car, and then of course have also have to do a new interior because it was pretty warm by that time, so it had additional life from there because it would then go to the dealer lot, and so uh, they are all for sale. No one ever thought about wow, some of these are gonna be really rare, unique, or different, or what have you. But uh, they were all done purposefully. They were all sold purposefully. Uh, just another car. It's just tin. We're selling cars. That's what we're here for. Uh, of course, now today, people that have a VIN number lower than 178 have a pretty cool car because it's going to have some kind of a marketing story and some kind of marketing connection. What's neat about 211 um, is actually one of the first ones that's actually made the very first day of line production to go to dealers. So it's a car built for the purpose of selling. So that kind of to us that makes it well. You got a marketing group over here, but then you've got actually Mustangs made for sale. These were purposely made for sale. Um, you know, and, and many of them, of course, the first ones that came out were pretty generic, as you mentioned. They're just pretty, you know, basic things to it. And then after that, people can go in there and you know they can take a twenty three hundred dollar car and make it come out thirty five hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was one of the neat things about the Mustang is that it started its history or its life as a car you can build to have the car you want. Which was very unique at the time. Yes, it was. It really was. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that sometimes we're, we're approached by an owner that says, I've got a 73 uh, or I've got a, uh, a 66. I got this year. It's got every single option offered onto it, you know? And you realize, you know, you start to look at the list and you go, my goodness, those things were options. You know, of course, most of it today is now just standard. Yeah. You just, you know, you pay a price and it comes with it type of a thing. So it's really interesting how that is, how that has uh, evolved when it comes to car building and car manufacturing and selling and buying and such. But uh, I thought it was rather interesting. So I want to kind of share some of those little numbers with you because uh, I think it's kind of interesting to know that um, at the beginning, Ford was just building cars. They really weren't sitting there trying to say, well, you know, in 20 years, it's going to be judged by the MCA, so we better have the right parts on here because that's not going to happen. It just didn't happen. And and as as, uh, Charles went through the car, he saw some things in there that were different than some of the other things, and he's made some notes in there that were different than than what maybe have been assumed to be, like in in how the glove box was painted, I believe, is one of the things that he had noted noted in Mm -hmm. there. but as you said, no one who knew then, right? Right. And they were in a hurry. Oh, yeah. They they, they actually knew that they were going to run into a production problem before the first car was actually even sold. So they had to start actually looking at where can they also build these Mustangs? Where else can they go and have to be able to retrofit and start to build? And, of course, uh, they wanted to do something on the West Coast, something on the East Coast, and, of course, out of Detroit, uh, which they ended up doing. So it was, it was uh, something that they realized right off the bat. 
this is going to be much bigger than they anticipated. And the worst thing to have is have a product that nobody can get. We see that today, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. For, and for all kinds of different reasons. Yes. Uh, that's the worst thing. We, uh, I, I, and of course, you imagine the dealerships would be upset, manufacturing would be upset, unions would be upset, everybody. So you've got to, they, they took a lot of risk. Um, I was actually reading just the other day uh, that Lee Iacocca had purposefully determined that this car was going to be premiered and, and shown purposefully. Everything they did marketing rise was around the New York World's Fair. That car had to be ready for the New York World's Fair, and that's their target date. So that's why the car, they talk about how, car, how quickly a car this Mustang took compared to other brands that Ford have done. Well, it's because they had a target date. They had to get that car done in time for April. And my understanding is the World's Fair cars, they were only done on March 3rd. Wow. Just a, about a week earlier than the cars that went to production. So it kind of gives you an idea is that it was that tight yeah. of a schedule to do things. So uh, it's interesting just to, and I, I have to say this, the, the marketing to this car was fin, it was phenomenal. It was amazing it's how they did this. It's a genius when you yes, go back and, it really and, is. and, and think about it, mm -hmm. how, how it all came to be. It did. And that's the neat thing about 211 is an example of that because it really is a per, it personifies just what the whole process was, you know, with what they had to do to get cars out, to get cars. So, cause with it, they knew at the dealerships, people were going to come in and they want those cars. And so uh, when I got some more of the information story uh, from, uh, from Charles and yourself, you know, I kind of thought, well, I feel kind of bad for you because in one respect, 211, um, it's, 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 it's a rough car. Um, but if you restored it, you lose everything to it. It's, it's kind of like... There, there's, the car is complete and original, except mm -hmm. for uh, the front and rear bumper, which I took off, as I said, I had a 66. I got new bumpers for my 66. I took those bumpers off, threw them on the 64, because they were better than what was on the 64. Mm -hmm. So those bumpers are gone. But other than that, all oh, the glass is original. Everything is original on the car. Well, And, and, and that... And as you said earlier, you talked about some of the difference, some of the different things in that Mustang Genesis at the very beginning. Some of these pieces on the car, like the quarter panels, don't measure right. So mm -hmm. they're, they're, they don't measure the way even cars a few days later measure. Right. Yeah. Well, again, it'd be something that they find parts or they have this or that. They have these connecting braces or these support arms or whatever. And they say, hey, wait a minute. Or they ran out. That was the other thing that would happen is I understand in production, they would run out and a supplier would be behind on getting them. And they could say, wait a minute, this almost looks like could cross reference to a Thunderbird. And they would actually try to, yep, it works. Boom, put it on, you know, because they had to keep production mm -hmm. going. Exactly. You stop production, you're not making money. And so that's that's definitely a key to it. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, though, that with the car, uh, the decision was to leave it as is, so to speak. Um, unfortunately, you don't get to drive it around. Yeah. <laughs> we can, with a little work, it would start. But um, yeah. I don't think you want to go too far no, with it. No. Too, no. As such. But uh, I do know it's, it's, when we do have people here, 
and um, and Todd was gracious enough to also to do a a, a, um, a QR code for us, which is now on the car, so you can run out there and take a picture and show your wife and family, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm in a QR code. Um, but uh, it's a neat piece for us to have, and it's a great piece of the history of the Mustang because you can certainly. I look at that, that is a starting point for us when it comes to Mustangs. Obviously, 211 is a very low number. We do happen to have 004 here also. Um, it's, you know, same, it was actually used at the World's Fair. Uh, but the same thing is that, you know, it was purposefully built. It ends up on an employee dealer lot, and, and they go for $2,300. And that's another great family story. <laughs> it is another great family story. We've been fortunate that Lee Mansell has been here numerous times with his family. Uh, he's he, We did a QR code with him, and we've done a podcast with him. Uh, great family. Uh, he's a hell of a fisherman. He owes me a fishing trip sometime, I think, soon, I hope. But uh, no, they, it, and that's really what it comes to the Mustang owners, is that Many of them are into it for different reasons, but they're all in the reason. They're all in the in the hobby uh, because they enjoy it. It's not because of the money. Those you can kind of you can kind of figure those people out pretty quickly. That they're there just strictly. It's just like stocks and bonds. I'm buying something. I want to see it go up. If it goes up, I'm gonna sell. It's immaterial to them what the product is. But this this is passion. And the passion is actually very much uh, part of it. So that's why we really think to have, we thank having you, you for having the car, oh, let us uh, have the car here. It's been a great piece. So go ahead. Oh, no, uh, I, was, I was going to add one more thing. And I don't please. know, it, we're over time. I'm not sure. but I don't know where we are either. All right. So um, <laughs> so we're talking about in a hurry, right? Things are in, they're moving along. You're talking about the World's Fair. And, and I think as I've tried to put pieces together for this car, uh, we look at the Indianapolis 500, and this car, uh, the Mustang, was the pace car in 64 for, for the Indianapolis 500. Holman Moody, here in Charlotte, uh, had to actually upfit the cars that were the true pace cars. Now, you see all the pace cars that were sold at dealers with the pace car kit on them. Those aren't the same as what actually paced at Indy. So they had to send cars to Holman Moody to upfit for the event. I believe, as I've pieced things together, my car has a DSO of Charlotte. So I, I think that, in my mind, this car traveled with the, the pace cars here to Charlotte. Uh, I think that's probably why one of the early cars came here, was because they were in a hurry. They had to get them here. It was a really tight turnaround from production to get things to Holman Moody and then get things back to Indianapolis sometime for the event. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. They were definitely involved. Uh, Holman Moody was definitely involved because the pace cars had to do a mandatory of 140 miles an hour. And the ones that came off the normal production line was not going to hit 140. So they went to Holman Moody to say, hey, how can you make this happen? So, and fortunately they did. Yes. Fortunately they did. So, all right. Well, here's the question we always like to ask our guests. So do you still have any Mustangs besides 211? I do. It's in slightly better condition than 211. I still have... So uh, I have a six, the 66 that I was talking about driving when I was in high school. Um, I got that as a Christmas gift, 1984. My dad, as I said, as a mechanic, had made things last way too long. So the first car he gave me was his old worn-out Datsun that he hadn't driven in a while because it was so bad. Um, when he gave me that car, it wouldn't start anymore without this. This was the instruction I got when he gave me that Datsun. He gave me a gas can. And he had drilled two holes in the air cleaner and said, you go out when you need to start in the morning, go out, pour gas in the air cleaner, 
start the car, but don't park near the house. That was the instructions for that car. Uh, slap horn out, but he already, they already had this Mustang. That was in September. They already had this Mustang, and my dad was doing a little bit to it. So it was very personal to me, that car. And it's unfortunately sitting in my uh, basement garage. So my son, my son frequently tells me we need to get that car going again, and we do. There you uh, go. It's a si- signal flare red, uh, 66 two-barrel, uh, 289, with the uh, cruisomatic in it, black interior, and uh, had a lot, a lot of good memories in that car. Well, and obviously with your son, you can probably create a lot more, too, so that's great. So obviously you're still in the hobby. So this is this. Well, anyway, Todd, thank you for joining us. Now, um, I hope you don't feel neglected, but I don't call or bug you anymore for a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm here for you anytime. It's know, truly, truly a pleasure to have my car in the museum. I'm, I'm honored to have it here. And I, well, I just, I, I wish, I wish my dad, he did live long enough to see the car on the cover of Mustang Monthly. I wish he lived long enough to see it on your calendar this year and in the museum because these would have been all unbelievable things for him. Oh, my pleasure. I've been wanting to have you on for some time, uh, especially after we had the National Mustang Day and you did such a great job. I'm sitting there going, we got to get you on. Let's go. So I'm glad it worked out. 